1: interesting conversation about tracing the start of his software passion and getting ready uh, to see petabytes of data on a daily basis and his role as a vice president for customer behavior analytics in Amazon. He also talks about his key learnings around listening skills to ability to have clarity of communication and creating a passion to statistics and he also talks about being a mentor to so many different people and talks about from a compile sook to a creating a release sook or whatever that you want to do to creating that satisfaction listen on welcome to the software people stories Prakash. so happy to have you here
0: Thank you for having me, Gayatri. This is something that I wanted to do for a long time. And you and I have been going back and forth. So finally, we made it.
1: So for our listeners, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? um...
0: Sure thing. So my name is Prakash Bulusu. I did my undergrad from what used to be REC Trichy, which is where I met Gayatri. I've since done a couple of jobs. My present one is... I'm vice president at Amazon and I lead customer behavior analytics. It's a very cool and fascinating job because I get to process petabytes of data, extract insights, make predictions, show the content that our customers really want, predict their needs and fulfill them in as best way as possible and do all the cool things that we will talk about a bit more in today's podcast.
1: Awesome, Prakash, I am looking forward to this. I, I know uh, we start, we did the engineering in the same college, but before engineering, what was your earliest memories of uh, either technology or software, any thoughts that you, got you started?
0: So my earliest memory of technology was when I was in awe looking at a Nintendo console and the ability to move those characters with clicks of your buttons, right? And then I figured another thing, I I grew up in a small town called Raipur, which gets very hot in summertime. Um, it's somewhat similar to Trichy, but hotter. I figured that if you show interest in computers, then you can spend time in air conditioning, which is a huge privilege at the time. So I started showing some inclination towards that, mostly trying to play games. But that would lead me to see the very early software that businesses used to use at the time. Very elementary, this was late 80s. And then when I did get to IEC Trichy, I saw the great Octagon, which was our computer science center. I was in awe of that facility, that building and all the things within that, including, um, I'm trying to recollect the name of our um, head of that department, we used, used to be in all of that, that um, professor.
1: It's amazing, right? Uh, earlier me- childhood memories really inspire you to go higher. I remember the octagon the first time. I like, oh, all these are actually talking to each other? Oh, that's the power of networks. And guess what? That's what we were studying also.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, you and I, Gayatri, were part of that far- fortunate lot which got into seeing computers in action. Like for example, even our semester fee was processed in a computerized way. And that was a big thing at the time because every other office was doing paperwork still on paper. Seeing digital world for the first time, both before REC in how Indian Railways used to do it or REC Trichy were very inspiring.
1: Um, i know you did your uh, ms in uh, university of florida after working for some time in wipro what prompted you uh, to do that uh, was there is there a personal reason or a professional reason what made you do that
0: it's actually a super interesting question because i took the unusual route meaning i worked for 3 years and then went on to do my masters usually that's a long enough gap that people get bored enough of the academics that they have done, whatever it might be, undergrad. So during the undergrad time, I got to do my internship at Indian Space Research. While it sounded super cool, you know, what we were doing was creating their first website. I was doing it with another Rectian friend of ours, uh, DHRA. We both were doing website development. And believe it or not, we were in awe of what they were doing, which is to build satellites and rockets and things like that. And they were in awe of what we were doing, which was very simple website design using HTML. (laughs) So back in the day, that was was super cool, right? And this was 97. So that prompted me to think about that particular branch, uh, which is e-commerce development a lot more, and I decided that I won't go into the hardcore computer engineering side, but more towards the application. I was fortunate enough to be offered, one of few members, Wipro had spun off this thing, this thing called an e-commerce division. And I got into that. It was very small and very different than Wipro. So that further fueled my interest in e-commerce. And then when I joined Wipro, I came to US and started working on MorganOnline.com Morgan and a couple of other websites. But during that time, something important happened. I visited a lot of our common friends actually, who were doing their masters. And I got, I got so fascinated by both what they were doing, but also the general education system here that I decided I will pursue. But by the time I experienced all of these things and I decided that I want to do it three years, I had to take my GRE, I had to apply. So that was the main reason I wanted to experience the education system in the US and actually give myself even more grounding in the e-commerce or the large data processing through masters.
1: Very nice, in fact, uh, I remember the early times of uh, going and visiting uh, some of my friends in Buffalo. That time, a couple of our friends were doing their MS in Buffalo. And it was very research oriented. And uh, it was not just research oriented, it's also application. There was a lot of collaboration with the industry. And that was amazing. While we did have it in uh, when we were studying the undergrad, but the uh, postgrad was a lot more uh, application driven, which is very exciting.
0: That's right. I mean, that was one of the things. And I, I saw people working in labs and how they're putting the thing that they're working real time next day. It's not even like, or the same day, right? It's not even like, okay, I'm going to learn this thing. And then two years, three years, four years later, I will apply it. That application is very important. Buffalo is a great university. Or When you actually see all these campuses, I think I went to University of Maryland, my office at that time, this J.P. Morgan's office where I was working, was right next to MIT. Okay. So when you see all these great institutions, even when you don't see the technology and just see the institution, that could also be inspiring. Um, I think now is the Netflix generation, YouTube generation, you can see all of this online and you don't feel it. But that feeling was also very different back
1: in the day. So uh, what made you move to the Seattle area? i mean was it amazon software or it was more of a possibilities i'm sure amazon in 2003 might have been a much smaller organization right they were doing more of a books Uh, or was it uh, did they already uh, uh, jump into e-commerce at the time
0: by by 2003 amazon was doing a lot more than books it was a fairly large e-commerce presence then nowhere close to where it is now Uh, nowhere close right but there were a few thousands of employees um, it was still a small enough company but the basic question I moved to Seattle because of uh, Amazon software and uh, that was my first time living in Pacific Northwest and as as you know uh, it's a beautiful place. Um, yes people complain about whether if you look at Seattle and live there for a year or two you get very used to it and you may start appreciating the evergreen aspect of it but yes those are very different days in amazon a lot of things that we see now like aws had their founding or just seeds being germinated around that time so i was very lucky to be part of those very early years at amazon
1: it's amazing right as to what what such a small one has actually Developed into multiple, I can't even call it as a tree, probably a forest. (laughs) (laughs) That
0: that is true. It's either a huge banyan tree kind of a tree or redwood tree, I don't know, or it's a forest.
1: Okay. So, I mean, what kind of decisions that you had to make when you decided to stay in the e-commerce, right? I mean, e-commerce, I can imagine it would have been extremely competitive, right? In terms of the speed in which you have to finish as well as the uncertainties this is early stage of career right so um, what kind of a decisions or thought processes that were making you stay in uh, uh, e-commerce i think that it's a, it itself is a difference right um,
0: you and i both have gone through the dot-com boom you know recently i was speaking to some small audience after speaking for a few minutes i realized that they hadn't heard about the dot-com boom or the dot-com burst. I shouldn't (laughs) take it for granted. But we went through that dot-com boom, during which I was part of many startups where we were coding their e-commerce applications, including a couple in India, which were ahead of their time, I would think. And I closely saw what works and what fails. And I wanted to develop even more understanding of that in an Amazon kind of a setting. So when I got the offer, I felt like I was very lucky to get that offer. And when I saw Amazon closely, you realize two things. One, how customer obsessed the company is. Second, how much more to do. I mean, even at the time, it was a magical experience, right? That you click a button and something comes to you automatically. It's like a remote to life that you press a button on your remote and something happens in the real physical world. When you go inside that kitchen, you see how much more can be done and how fast things are. Okay. So the customer obsession, the pace at which the innovations were happening, just the people around you who are extremely smart and driven. Um, but for me, the other distinctive factor was that I could very easily relate to it. There are kinds of software right one software where you can relate to it you can see it in use every day and, and that was a big differentiator i can see how customers are using it every day and whatever we launch i can get the feedback real time they liked it they didn't like it how did they like it so that made me get super excited working at amazon so uh, you moved to
1: microsoft after that right so you, yes i think your early start of search and data-based uh, modeling started from there. I mean, was that a big difference in terms of search in itself is nebulous, right? You know, you can see it, but you can't really see it. Unlike a e-commerce where, you know, there is a shopping cart, you, it's slightly different. How was that transition? Was there a transition at all in how you looked at it? or? Uh?
0: So there is a transition. First of all, there is a physical transition because... Both companies are close enough in the Seattle area, but they're still in a very different setting. Amazon used to be downtown Seattle, Microsoft is in Redmond, which are kind of suburbs of Seattle. Then there is also a transition in terms of how these companies operate. Microsoft at the time was predominantly an enterprise company, whereas Amazon was solely an e-commerce company. So the way the software development works was different, adjust to those things. Whether I was in Bing or in the experimentation platform, the two things remained same, which is my ability to see how customers react to our software development was still there. Because even in Bing, which was codenamed at the time and was not fully released, you can see whatever you made the change, how customers are reacting to it because it was also an online service. Okay. Around that time, the what we used to call RTM or release to manufacturers um, or uh, was changing to this new paradigm called release to web RTW. And the, the basic difference there is that you, you can take more risk when you do RTW because you can fix it real time, even if you take a more aggressive shot at creating software. Right. So, so those things remained same. It was a bit of a... Learning, meaning Amazon was just getting into a writing culture. Microsoft w- was at the time predominantly PowerPoints. You change your style of communication, you change your style of software development
1: a bit. Excellently, put I think you're saying from a B two I mean business to customer, right? B two C to a B two B, and right. when, and the kind of data you get also will be different, right? When you yeah, uh, and the, and the management style. Is, I think it's very well documented in terms of between Microsoft and Amazon, right? Uh, the leadership styles to how decisions are being taken. Also, I've heard this uh, in Amazon takes this three-page write-up. If you don't, uh, if you, in whatever idea that you have, <laughs> you have to have a three page document while everywhere else, it's a, a hundred page uh, PPT that happens when the, it's beaten to death before even you get started from a management style. What kind of a learning did you have at this stage? I think this must be the time when you had become a first uh, generation manager with uh, people reporting to you and some level of mentoring. What kind of uh, aspects did you inculcate into your team?
0: So when, when you become a frontline manager. The first thing I learned was, I used to call this compile satisfaction. In fact, you know, I even named it in an Indian word for it, saying, hey, this is my compile sook. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so what happens is that somewhat or in some cases fully goes away from you. You're no longer getting that hit that F5 button or whatever button is to Compile and deploy your code. And I'm sure you have that feeling too that you feel slightly better when you're having dinner that night or sleeping that night. I completed this code, I deployed it. There's a sense of satisfaction. And I call that satisfaction compile sat, compile satisfaction, right? And it moves to something different. And that something different keeps growing as you grow in the management chain. And if you don't remain an IC, but you have to learn to draw satisfaction from getting things done versus doing things. So I named it as release satisfaction. Okay. or launch satisfaction, right? So instead of compiling code myself, how can I get this thing launched as a team? And when we launch it, I may get some small footage of sending an email saying we launched this software or thank you team for launching this effort but that replaced that was my first learning on how actively to do that because it's very difficult uh, for many months i was not feeling satisfied at all that this is, doesn't sound like a real job a manager's job because i'm not doing any as much coding as i used to that was one aspect of it then the second aspect of it was the people management, which we underestimate and underrate on how tough it is.
1: Most underrated on uh, Prakash, I can't believe it. it is not, it's it, not very well documented too.
0: Exactly. Don't you think so? And it's very difficult to document it too because it's so subjective. Meaning it's not like a construction plan, right? Where I have the print of what I will do and I'll go about doing it. It's more like gardening that every day there is a new challenge and you have to treat it differently organically. So those were my learning days of how to manage a high-performing, smart team, where you have to accept the fact that most people could be smarter than you and you still have to earn their respect. And how exactly do you do that? That was the second aspect. And it took, that one took me time. It cannot be like difference between smartness and wisdom. You can get smartness very quick, but wisdom takes time. Sure. So I would say people management is wisdom comes over time. But those were the days when I was learning, and I failed many times, and started learning over time.
1: Any uh, stories that you want to share there uh, in that uh, during that journey?
0: Uh, that's a tough one. So one meta learning I already shared with you, which is to how to step back and draw satisfaction from other things. And by the way, that continued. I mean, when you're a frontline manager, you may get that release satisfaction of whatever uh, you do as a team and launch. What happens when you become manager of managers? Or what happens when you grow to senior levels of management is that you can now set the culture, set the policies, set tenets, which I learned and operationalized after joining Amazon. It's such a beautiful company, operates on tenants. You are not able to exactly do that thing directly by yourself. And that's, that's a story that I learned. But the second thing I will tell you, when I, when I rejoined Amazon back in 2011, one thing I was very really surprised by was how every discipline, when I say discipline, I mean software engineers, HR, finance, legal, business we're all together in many meetings, not just in one meeting. And they were all sharing product ideas equally. That's the document culture that you were talking about, that we would read the document. And after that, there is no line saying that, hey, this is a software person, so they can only talk about technology and this is a legal person, so they would only talk about legal. I think that's a beautiful thing because that gives you diversity of those topics. And the art you have to develop is how to make use of it. How to take all of the diversity and make the product better. And I'm probably digressing from your original question.
1: No, no, um, I think you answered it. You're saying, see, not just from a first-line manager, right? You, you have to also say launch satisfaction or unit satisfaction, right? You, for example, one of the CEO who had interviewed, he was saying about how the entire company is a long shadow of the leader. So you have to understand your culture part of it. And the end of the quarter, when you're actually doing earnings uh, when we talk about it, that is the biggest high that he gets but for for you to reach that every day there is a a small or mini marathon that you have to keep running. So when you speak about interdisciplinary, you spoke also about customer obsessed so are you saying that each of the discipline are customer obsessed or they are more in their own lane or they are all they they keep changing lanes and how does that work?
0: That kind of works in a very simple way that, yes, you specialize in the lane that you operate in or you're trained for, but you have been in the company or in the industry for long enough that you can bring any idea. There is no reason to stop short. For example, I'm sitting in some technology review, but I just don't like the business model. Why should I stop myself short and not give that feedback that I don't? believe in this business model. Yes, I will speak in terms of technology with that eye that I'm trained for it. And maybe that's what folks are looking for when I talk about technology. But at Amazon, we don't stop short in that way, right? When you're brainstorming, we're all brainstorming it together when we're discussing a doc or a product roadmap or whatever it might be. It's all thinking together. And you can bring your own perspective, but you can give any other feedback to And that's that's very beautiful. And when that happens well, you will see that it actually changes the product in a very meaningful way.
1: And it's also joint accountability, right? It's not yours or mine, it's ours. And that sort of builds, I mean, obviously you will have a loyalty for overall organization, but you also kind of have the sense of loyalty to your idea as being implemented or the entire thing, right? I think that brings a lot of difference.
0: Yeah, you know, early on, it took me some time to adjust to that because, see, when you're doing, let's say I have an idea and I'm presenting it using PowerPoint, then I'm leading the idea. I'm changing the slides. I'm talking about the stories on each slide. When you convert that into a doc, everyone has read the doc and then you start the discussion. The primary role of that presenter is a bit subdued and it takes time to adjust to that because you may be very used to that former kind of a presentation and the latter is far better, but it will take time. But once you adjust to that style, you'll realize that too much, like you said, ours rather than mine or yours, right? It's collective team thing. And that's what the document culture does. It gives equal opportunity for everyone to interpret your idea in their way.
1: Very nicely, but I never thought of it like that. Even though I know about narrative uh, and the PPT, but never thought of, you know, the the central table. So uh, first person who's actually standing or sitting, if you you actually move that away and say, Oh, everybody is in the actually sitting around. And it's a, the circle and there's no or a hierarchy for that pattern. Nice. <laughs> Very nicely But I never thought of it like that, Prakash. Nice. Interesting. When um, you speak about your own way to adjust, right? Was there any additional learning that you had to do or maybe unlearning that you had to do?
0: So one learning, and this is, this is my favorite topic of what I would do differently if I had a uh, time machine to go back, is uh, I cannot insist more that how important communication is, both verbal and written communication. And honestly, it doesn't matter what your primary language of education is, because in my view, 80% of communication is clarity of thought. And you are then developing that clarity of thought by developing clarity of communication. And what I figured is that when I was growing up, I was... Kind of trained all wrong. If you remember, we you know, as 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 kids, we get this, hey, write this essay in 500 words, and I would end up writing 2,000 words because I. I and you were awarded that re- for that. You were awarded for
1: that exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. So you're rewarded, and and therefore I feel like we are trained a little bit wrong in that that particular area. I, I don't remember who said it, but if some famous person who said that. I didn't have a lot of time. So I wrote this lengthy thing, Writing it crisper and shorter takes a lot more time than, than doing what probably I was doing as a kid. So that one thing took me a lot of time when combined with the documentation culture at Amazon, because I don't just have to write something up. I have to write it for others. And when you write it for others, a lot of things start looking different. For example, it has to be a standalone dog, meaning you cannot load all the context or the baggage I have in my head. The dog has to speak for itself. Second, it has to be factual, that I cannot write poetry there. Unless I, I write that I'm writing poetry here, I cannot write poetry there. It has to be factual, it has to be logical, it has to make sense, it has to be backed up by data. So there are so many elements of writing well, which I started learning or relearning. And that was quite an adjustment. I I used to be afraid of writing a doc and we write everything, right? We write our yearly plans. We write our monthly plans. We write our business reviews on a monthly and quarterly basis. So there's so many docs. And the moment the time comes for me to write a doc, I used to find every excuse not to write it, procrastinate, but eventually I have now come to a point where I look forward to when I will write my next job. And I think that transition, the sooner we do in our life, the better it is. And the second thing, which is also grossly underrated, and you are great at it, I've seen you do it, but I wasn't, is storytelling. In spite of the fact that we put all the facts and logicals, we are engineers and scientists. The the truth is, we still make most of our decisions based on an emotion and bringing that emotion up is storytelling. So how do you not just write that doc with clarity, but how to tell a story in that dog is equally important.
1: Very nice. In fact, I recently went through a, you know educational course on <laughs> writing better blogs. Right? Um, yeah. what, uh, what this author says is that four things, simplicity, clarity, elegance and evocativeness. Evocativeness is, is a very bigger word to say emotional. Bring that emotion. And he also says if you can use simple words, just use simple words, won't make it big. That way, you're not losing the writer. You, so I think what you're saying is you
0: have to be able to connect to that person using that document. Right. I mean, the, what what you're saying is that Richard Feynman school of thought, where he his litmus test is explain this to a fifth grader, and they should understand what you're doing. Otherwise, you're hiding behind a jargon or an adverb or an adjective, um, kind of a. So totally subscribe to that. I'm glad there are courses like that i wish i knew about them and taking them much earlier in my career
1: so when uh, you had also did the biggest transition around marketing analytics as well as behavior analytics the role that you are playing right now um, i know data i mean is huge today but uh, was it very scary when you gotten into that because obviously you and i were not brought up in an R world where you actually know how to do programming in uh, using data. I mean, it's not just about learning those languages or the processing that data. Was it hard to get that, get into that kind of a rhythm of looking at that level of data?
0: It was not that hard, honestly, in part because during my master's also, I I did my thesis around visualization of large-scale data. Well, large-scale at the time meant something very different than what is large-scale. Today, and I'm, i am 100% 100% sure that what you large scale today will be very different than what whatever large scale will be 10 years from now. However, the basic techniques remain same. I'll tell you another thing that is happening, unlike everything else. So what has happened is our computing has grown exponentially, our storage has grown exponentially, our data in both volume and variety has grown exponentially. But fortunately, one thing is happening a little more linearly or gradually is is to bring the elements of different sciences and engineering together. So for example, when you deal with large scale data, you need to bring a lot of math into it. Similar to, by the way, communication, one other pet peeve I have is the amount of time I spent in high school learning trigonometry. And I wish instead of that, I had learned um, statistics because that now has become even more important uh, and you bring it together which is what is now called data science right essentially so all these different elements of engineering and sciences are coming together to make your life easier to develop or to process this data also the external libraries tools software are also coming together to help you with what you want to do, right? I mean, it's also this sign kind of a curve that everything started with asynchronous processing, then it became all synchronous, then now all asynchronous, now it's semi-synchronous. So so that wave also helps you that, okay, the expectation is not that I'm going to process this data in milliseconds and give the answer. Maybe I'll give you the answer and not process the data in milliseconds. So when you write all of these tech patterns, um, it gives you enough room, I think, to adjust to the change that's happening.
1: Yeah. And, uh, this is uh, being in a COVID world. It's also amazing has to how much more data is getting uh, generated, right? Um, be it from a payments world or be it in the, in the social media. So much of information is now going through. Father's elder brother, he started using video calls. He's very. He's now become very comfortable. He's like, oh. uh, and then uh, when I was speaking about some payment, he said, oh, um, I do it in uh, this model. I said, wow, mind-boggling. Wow, wow, wow. And that is uh, really amazing that I can't even imagine if COVID had happened uh, 10 years back or 15 years back, it would have just crippled us enormously compared to what it is. And that in itself is a power, right? You're saying you're able to power so many other people. And uh, it's very humbling um, at the same time.
0: Right. But at this um, the there are some this is every cloud has that silver lining. So what one, one silver lining is we have gotten more used to this virtual setup. Like we are pulling this podcast off. Maybe we would have done it in a different way in the pre-COVID world. But I do think um, COVID has brought some good things. And I shouldn't say COVID, but whatever this era has brought some some things, expedited few things as well. Like when I was in India, I was able to live off my UPI uh, payment for almost everything. A great thing.
1: Uh, Prakash, when you look at your role today, right, over the evolution, what are some of your key things, key decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis? Without, of course, uh, talking about your uh, confidentiality. What are the few things that you think, yes, I have those characteristics or tenets, as you call it?
0: There are all kinds of decisions. You can divide them into decisions that machines can take and decisions that humans need to take. The decisions that machines take, for example, what content uh, should our customers be seeing in some parts of the site or in many parts of the site? Our objective there is to make machines take that decision as objectively as effectively as possible. The other thing is to try to see how much we can simply put remove magic numbers. Let's let's say that magic numbers are everywhere. Even today, by the way. So, for example, most companies will put a rule that you shouldn't get more than one email, marketing email per day, right? But that one is a magic number. Some person may be tolerant to three emails per day and Gayatri may not be tolerant to even one per day. So why should it be hard-coded like that? We take several tactical decisions like that where how can machine take most of those decisions by learning your preferences, your uh, needs, and so on. The decisions that human takes are becoming more and more what I call them strategic or high value, right? In there, the kind of decisions that I participate in are the ones which are ambiguous, where we process a lot of data, but the information is not super clear. Meaning you get something like this, hey, with 60% confidence, I can tell you that this will happen if you launch this. Or with 80% confidence, I will give you the opposite news um, with a wider interval or something like that. So you get into that kind of a world where you may even see different answers coming out of different assumptions in the model or different set of models. In those cases, we use a lot of judgment and that judgment comes of two things obviously it comes out of my own experience but it also comes out of a collective uh, wisdom that we will go put it on the table transparently and talk about it but those are the kind of decisions we we
1: uh, in fact you're saying uh, one is uh, decisions that can be taken objectively let that go and uh, decisions that cannot be taken particularly sometimes we, we use this colloquial terms that numbers can lie If uh, if you want want to make them like, that's the hardest part, right? Ensuring that numbers are not very straightforward. How do you ensure that this, uh, in the end of the day, our intelligence, how much ever uh, artificial intelligence is there, human intelligence outweighs most of the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And what, what you you know, you you will know already, and we are seeing as well as the more these... Uh, machine learning models, AI gets sophisticated, the less explainable it is. And the human mind, whoever is making a business decision, not just needs an output from these, but many times you need the explanation behind it, how it came to that decision, right? That's equally important. So, for example, if the weather forecast model says that there is going to be a hurricane or a tsunami in a in some place it has dire consequences and we act upon it and therefore you definitely want to know a lot more how did that model reach to that place so that you can act more confidently in that kind of a case even when you take the output of the model you still make many decisions which are
1: human as you as a leader have you developed in yourself i know i know you are a resilient i know you are smart and you know you are a continuous learner prakash um, you also mentioned about communication we also spoke about bringing storytelling and emo- emotive uh, sense. Anything else that you want to uh, that you brought up in your own yourself?
0: Thank you for all the kind words. I, I don't know if I can subscribe to all of those or not. But one one thing that I activated is to learn more about statistics. And I I think irrespective of the field you are in, I'm seeing that it it is a required tool in. Most toolkits, irrespective, of whether you're uh, you are going in medicine, whether you're, in fact, even going in law, the knowledge of statistics is not going to hurt. And I think it's a key, one of the key ingredients in this present and the upcoming future. As machines start doing more things, you will have to learn how to talk to those machines in those terms. And like I said, irrespective of what you, I was recently looking at, you know, the data about uh, these COVID vaccines and how effective are they? And it's, the language is all written in statistics. And the more you learn, the more you appreciate that, okay, this is what they're trying to say.
1: Suddenly everybody uh, has become a statistician now. <laughs> Artists, everybody is talking about Atma like, Do you know what R factor
0: is? That's right. That's right. So so definitely that is one thing I, I encourage myself to do. The second thing I will say is that creativity was always important creativity is also very difficult to learn there's no course that says okay i'll get you to advanced level of creativity do this course kind of thing but whatever creativity means for that individual um, we all need to figure how to do it better how to apply more viewpoints how to think from a different viewpoint how to uh, perhaps think what we call out of the box right and that world is already here and you can see it like whether, whether it is Web3, whether it is, and there's so much jargon now uh, capturing what you can think of being super creative about how to bring all of these things together to, and the tools are very much there because now with one click, you can watch something on YouTube or some other site and learn that tool very quickly.
1: Yeah, um, and the learning itself, right, has become very democratized. Uh, in that sense, it's available and it is, I mean, not necessarily, it was not that it was not there earlier, but it was available only in a smaller pockets that you have to go seek. Now it is there, it, the information is there and it's up to you to search and get it right. I think that's, it's very different as long as you are focused to make it happen, then you you get that. Very, very cool, Prakash. I know we, I, I have, we have been having a very interesting conversation. But I one question you talked about when you want to go back, what will you do? If you had a time turner and imagine life maybe 20 years from now, how would it look like? Have you thought of that or it's too bizarre a question?
0: 20 years is a long time. I have not thought that far out. I mean, obviously... Well, one thing I, I do see is that whatever we saw 20 years ago, in you know, all these sci-fi movies, right? Minority Report or um, <laughs> Matrix, a lot of it is actually coming true. And in some ways, they if you, if you see even the key innovators of our generation, they come from the Star Trek generation. So in some ways, I guess the net news is if we pay attention to all the upcoming sci-fi movies, we will see a lot more <laughs> technology where it is evolving. But I do see many trends which will be true. Uh, for example, I do think that AI and data science will be in every key aspect, every aspect I would say. And it will replace all these magic numbers that exist which are assumption-based and hard-coded. And I was talking to someone who had put data science within a compiler to detect whether the compiler has been hacked and malicious, right? So it's getting to that level where I I think data science seamlessly will be there. But with that, the field of ethics, transparency, accountability around the data, how you own your own data, uh, what you want to do with it or not want to do with it will also evolve. There'll be more regulation, more scrutiny, genuinely so of data and applications around data. I also think that the way we work has already changed and will continue to change in a very, very big way, right? I mean, who knows uh, with all the virtualization, whether it is Metaverse or Web3 or whatever we call it, uh, how it is evolving, it will change the way we train ourselves, we work we interact with our friends, families, kids, social networks, right? All of that is going to change in a big way. And that's um, also not a train that we can stop. Now, and it's not a question of if, I think, when quantum computing will come mainstream, I think it will generate something that we probably wouldn't have seen or expected or difficult to anticipate altogether. But It will be around these lines of how... How what we are doing today can be done in a fraction of time, especially with upcoming 5G networks. And I think the key ingredients are already there. And as, as we have all read so many times, that we consume what one day's worth of data is equivalent to full lifetime of someone who was living in an 18th century. I think 20 years from now, we might be saying something along those lines for ourselves now.
1: Very true. Very well put, Prakash. In fact, I read somewhere that uh, a person, even a normal person today in this century, Uh they are much more in a better state, better quality of living compared to a king who used to be in 18th century. I I think I'm sure that uh, within 20 years, 15 years, I think that's going to change completely, right? Uh, And that too, what you said about quantum computing, AI as well as the 5G. I think things will innovate. Innovation will happen in the intersection of
0: it. Yes, I think that's the key. That intersection, that convergence. And what is happening is that convergence is actually challenging the status quo, right? And we've seen, for example, Uber challenged how taxi businesses run in a big way and disrupted that. What is remaining, for example, I think healthcare, specifically in the US. Has maintained status quo for long enough. Then we disrupted. Um, so whatever is remaining status quo should be very afraid of itself because it will be disrupted very really
1: soon. Change is the only thing, right? <laughs> I know this is an exciting conversation. Any thoughts that you want to share with, with our listeners, Prakash? I think I, I love the whole your journey in terms of not just from what you have done, but also from what you have learned and what has what has been your uh, main Takeaways?
0: Any thoughts and thoughts that you want to leave with the listeners? Since this is a mostly a technology kind of a talk, I think I would leave your listeners with the thought that the technology will continue to change exponentially, and therefore we have to be very open-minded and adapt to that change. So if I hear myself saying, "Oh, I belong to that era," Where I used to need a keyboard and now I don't, and I don't adjust to this. Stop yourself, train yourself, and adapt to this new change because most of them will stick. So that's that's at least what I keep telling myself.
1: Excellent, Prakash. So very nicely put, and thank you for giving that wisdom. I think that's what is the hardest part to get and uh, thank you for doing this and Happy New Year uh, to you and to all the listeners.
0: Happy New Year, uh, Gayatri, and thank you so much for taking time. Um, I hope this is helpful.
1: Certainly. Thank you.